Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. An explosive stunt that incited a panic. An erupting volcano could have meant the three Ds. Death, destruction, disaster. The tragic tale of a teenage spy. It's a love story that transcends the ages. The unlikely final resting place of a missing monarch. I sort of felt the hairs rise on the back of my neck. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Wilmington, Delaware. This renowned center of banking and finance is home to nearly 60% of the nation's Fortune 500 companies. But one business is so intrinsically linked to the city that it has an entire institution dedicated to its history. The Hagley Museum explores the legacy of the DuPont Company with items that trace the industrial giant's origins as a 19th century gunpowder manufacturer. But amidst its explosive artifacts is one item that seems to have no place at all in the annals of American history. It is made of cardboard. When you open the box, the object inside seems to sparkle. According to museum director David Cole, this flimsy material altered the face of modern retail. It absolutely revolutionized the shopping experience. So what is this product? And how did its accidental invention change American consumer habits forever? 1900, Paris, France. Jacques Brandenburger is an ambitious Swiss chemist working in the textile industry. He was always looking for the next big thing. Where others ran into an obstacle, he would see yet another opportunity. But the scientist also has a burning hunger for fine French cuisine. He had the good fortune to be in Paris, which, of course, at the time was the capital of good eating and good drinking. One evening, Brandenburger is enjoying a delicious meal when the relaxing environment of the restaurant is suddenly disturbed. He looks up to see that a patron at a nearby table 
has spilled a glass of red wine. There was a lot of hustle and bustle on the part of the wait staff, removing articles from the table, bringing fresh tablecloths, and really disrupting the whole ambiance of the restaurant. But where others see commotion, Brandenburger senses inspiration. His keen scientific and innovative mind kicked in. He thought to himself, there's an opportunity here. Brandenburger knows that replacing soiled tablecloths is a time-consuming nuisance for waiters and patrons alike. So the bright engineer has an idea. To make a tablecloth that can easily repel liquids and stains. Brandenburger is immediately intrigued by this problem and begins to focus solely on how to solve it. But he knows it won't be easy. Brandenburger knew he had to achieve a very delicate balance between a protective coating that was strong enough to repel water, but flexible enough that you could still bend the fabric. He begins by applying different chemical formulas to pieces of cloth, but success is elusive. Initially, to his frustration, his first experiments failed, either because they did not protect the cloth from staining or because they actually ruined the texture of the cloth. And when chemicals fail to yield a solution, he turns to nature. Brandenburger noticed that the smooth, waxy textures of the leaves of plants help the plants repel water and that water droplets actually just roll right off. Brandenburger wagers that cellulose, a sugar molecule that gives plants their water-repellent qualities, could be applied to cloth. He develops his cellulose-like substance, he applies a coat of it to a fabric, and then he waits to see if he's going to get the desired effect. But to his great dismay, after the coating had dried, Brandenburger discovered that the surface was very stiff, so stiff that he couldn't bend the fabric. But as he cleans up from yet another failed experiment, he notices a very strange byproduct. As he's removing the coating from the fabric, he notices that it peels off like a very thin, featherweight, transparent sheet. Brandenburger examines the sheet and is fascinated by its most obvious quality. He suddenly became struck by its transparency. Brandenburger has a eureka moment. The enterprising scientist suspects this curious byproduct could still serve a useful purpose in retail. In the early 1900s, most consumer goods are wrapped with brown paper and string, leaving shoppers to trust that what is inside meets their expectations. The times were really ripe for a brand new solution. Brandenburger believes his accidental discovery could provide the answer. And in 1908, he puts his invention on the market as a new, flexible, transparent packaging. He combines its chief chemical ingredient and most noticeable quality to give it a clever new name. Cellophane, the combination of cellulose and diaphan, which is the French word for transparent. Cellophane is an instant hit with shoppers across Europe. It literally changed the relationship between the consumer and the product because now consumers could actually see the thing they were buying. They could trust the purchasing experience. Soon, DuPont buys the rights to Brandenburger's invention, minting him a fortune. The company packages rolls of cellophane in boxes, exactly like the one in the Hagley Museum's permanent collection. Eventually, cellophane makes its way into all corners of consumer life. We see it all around us in product packaging, in gift wrapping, and even in adhesive tape. 
Today, this original roll of cellophane is at the Hagley Museum in Wilmington, Delaware. It serves as a reminder of how a failed experiment led to a see-through hit that revolutionized retail. Sitka, Alaska is home to just 9,000 people. But covering 4,710 square miles, it has the largest geographic spread of any city in the United States. And in the heart of downtown is an institution dedicated to a history as far-reaching as the region itself. The Sitka Historical Society Museum. It showcases artifacts from the area's native Tlingit people, including spruce root baskets, intricately carved totems, and a ceremonial raven rattle. But there is one artifact in the collection that hails from Sitka's far more recent past. It's blue. It's made of nylon. It has stripes on the cuffs. And it has a snowy volcano emanating a black plume of smoke. Within the cloud is a set of red letters. It spells a strange word. Porkies. According to historian Burgess Bowder, this item celebrates a day that no one will ever forget. It was an explosive event that had all of Alaska fired up. What incendiary episode does this jacket commemorate? April 1974, Sitka, Alaska. Only accessible by boat and plane, this small port city is a quiet haven. But its most distinctive feature is the 3,200-foot-tall Mount Edgecombe. Towering over the horizon, this imposing volcano has laid dormant for 9,000 years. Mount Edgecombe is, to the people of Sitka, probably comparable to what Mount Fuji is to the people of Japan. Nobody has an expectation of it going off in the immediate future. But on the morning of April 1st, the town wakes up to an ominous sight. Black smoke billowing from the top of the volcano. It was this big black plume wafting away to the south. It was a sign that the volcano was about to go. Soon, the local radio station broadcasts a report about the smoldering Mount Edgecombe, sending a wave of panic across the isolated community. If the volcano were to erupt, Sitka could be wiped off the map in mere moments. An erupting volcano could have meant the three Ds. Death, destruction, disaster. The police and fire departments are deluged with calls. And wondering if they might have to order an evacuation, Coast Guard officials spring into action. They dispatch a helicopter to conduct a dangerous reconnaissance mission. They were going to go out, look, and fly back and report. The worst thing they could have seen would be a simmering cauldron of boiling lava. But as the crew members peer down through the thick smoke, they are completely shocked at what they see. What did they find? They found a whole bunch of burning tires. And that's not all. Spelled out in 50-foot-tall black letters is a very recognizable phrase. April Fool! The commander of the aircraft, when he radioed back to Air Station Sika, said, we've been had. So who is responsible for this explosive April Fool's joke?
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's April 1st, 1974. Sitka, Alaska. Residents of this remote village awaken to a terrifying sight. Smoke billowing from the top of the long-dormant Mount Edgecombe volcano. But when a Coast Guard helicopter crew investigates, they make a startling discovery. There's no imminent eruption, just a pile of burning tires and a simple message that reads, April Fools. So who pulled off this smoldering prank? It doesn't take officials long to find the guilty party. There's only one person in town that the police figured could be responsible for this. That man is an old logger and equipment store owner named Oliver Porky Bicar. Everybody knew Porky. He was eccentric, one of a kind, and a born entertainer. Bicar has a reputation for outrageous stunts. His previous exploits included tricking wildlife-loving tourists by placing pink flamingos in trees. But faking a volcanic eruption is his biggest gag yet, and he explains it was a joke years in the making. He had waited for four years or five years till he had a sunny April 1st. With clear skies finally predicted for April 1st, 1974, Porky put his plan into action. In the middle of the night, he and a band of fellow pranksters shuttled hundreds of tires to the top of Mount Edgecombe via helicopter. 
Then, Porky stomped out his giant message in the snow, spray-painting the letters black. Then he laced the tires with accelerants and set them ablaze. Tires make a lot of smoke. And as the smoke wafted above the towering Mount Edgecombe, it was enough to convince his fellow citizens that the volcano was about to blow. He was delighted to have pranked so many people in the community. Porky Bikar's fake eruption of Mount Edgecombe makes headlines across the country. And even duped Coast Guard officials appreciate the effort it took to pull off this epic prank. Everybody thought it was an amazing joke. Eventually, Porky makes the image of a simmering volcano the logo for his equipment rental business and creates commemorative jackets, like this one now on display at the Sitka Historical Society Museum. Today, this jacket is a fitting tribute to one man's oversized sense of humor and one of the most explosive April Fool's jokes of all time. Leicester, England. Once a fortified outpost of the Roman Empire, remnants of that ancient civilization still dot this city, including the famed Jury Wall, which dates back to 125 AD. But in the center of town is an institution dedicated to the legacy of a different dynasty, the King Richard III Visitor Center. Devoted to the memory of one of England's most infamous monarchs, this modern facility houses a replica of his coronation chair, a stained glass portrait of the king's family, and medieval coats of arms. But its centerpiece is an unusual display that overlooks a puzzling plot of earth. What you see is a glass box that measures round about three feet by seven feet long. As you look through the glass, you actually see this rather roughly dug hole. It's very curved and ragged. As archaeologist Richard Buckley knows firsthand, this unusual excavation owes its existence to a tenacious woman who was determined to answer an age-old question. It doesn't look like much. But what we found here very much alters the course of history. What amazing story was unearthed right in this very spot? 2005, Scotland. 41-year-old screenwriter Philippa Langley has dedicated herself to a very specific pursuit, the study of King Richard III. Philippa is very much an amateur historian, uh, but also has a very deep knowledge of the king himself. Born in 1452, King Richard III is considered one of England's most reviled rulers, with a distinctive hunchback and twisted spine that even Shakespeare considered symbolic of the monarch's crooked character. He was this very controversial figure from English history. Just two years into his reign, the 32-year-old king was killed at the Battle of Bosworth by a blow to the head. But in contrast to other monarchs, the unpopular ruler's body does not rest in a lavish tomb. In fact, the location of his burial site has been lost for more than five centuries. Most serious historians would say there is absolutely no chance of finding Richard's remains. But fueled by a powerful curiosity, Langley believes she can solve the mystery. She scours the history books for any references to the lost grave of King Richard III. She soon uncovers an account that not long after his death, Richard's body was taken to a monastery in Leicester. But that monastery was destroyed over 400 years ago, 
and the site is now nothing more than a parking lot. With little else to go on, Langley decides to visit Lester anyway. When she arrives, something about the parking lot captures her attention. She felt the atmosphere of the place and she had goosebumps. Those goosebumps lead her to a very specific spot. Philippa saw an R marked on the car park. The R designates a reserved space, but Langley believes it's a sign and that the R stands for Richard. It was enough to give her a real feeling that Richard's remains were somewhere in the vicinity. The only way to know for certain is to excavate the parking lot. And in 2011, after years of planning, Langley presents her idea to archaeologist Richard Buckley. When I first spoke to her, I thought it was a bit of a mad phone call. Philippa's unwavering belief convinces Buckley to follow her intuition. I think what really attracted me to the project was Philippa's enthusiasm. There's just one problem. Leicester City government refuses to let an amateur historian dig up a parking lot on the basis of mere instinct. But Philippa Langley refuses to take no for an answer. Philippa was, was a woman with a mission, and she'd managed to get the ear of some significant people within the city council. Her tenacity pays off, and in 2012, Leicester officials finally agree to let the excavation begin, with one condition. We had to complete the excavation within three weeks of the start. As the dig gets underway, the team has a seemingly impossible task. It was very much a shot in the dark. After just hours of digging, archaeologists find something incredible. We found remains of a human leg bone. Working quickly and carefully, it takes another week and a half to fully expose the remains. And when archaeologists piece the skeleton together, what they find shocks them to the core. Evidence on the skull clearly indicated that this person had died a violent death. But that's not all. The bones have another notable characteristic. The most striking thing was the curvature of the spine. The team is astounded. The wounded skull and bent spine are consistent with historical accounts of Richard III. Tests reveal that the remains belong to a male in his late 20s or early 30s, who died between 1455 and 1540, aligning perfectly with Richard III's untimely death. I felt the sort of the hairs rise on the back of my neck. And when the team compares the ancient DNA against Richard's living descendants, it's a perfect match. Beyond reasonable doubt, we'd found the remains of Richard III. Against all odds, Philippa Langley's intuition solved a riddle that has puzzled historians for centuries. A few years later, the city of Leicester builds the King Richard III Visitor Center, directly above this improbable excavation site. And in March 2015, after 527 years in obscurity, King Richard III is formally laid to rest at the Leicester Cathedral in a lavish ceremony. Today, this preserved burial site is a testament to a determined woman who stopped at nothing to solve a 500-year-old mystery. San Diego, California has a deep connection to American aviation. In fact, Charles Lindbergh's Spirit of St. Louis was built here in 1927 
by the Ryan Airline Company. The city's high-flying history is celebrated at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Its massive collection includes a World War II Supermarine Spitfire Mark 16 and the Apollo 9 Command Module Capsule. But among these monumental machines is a diminutive object that hardly looks like it left the ground. The artifact is about five inches long. It's made out of chrome and brass, and it fits in the palm of your hand. But according to museum official Jessica Packard, this unassuming item is linked to one of the most heroic moments in American history. Some believe this pen saved a legendary space flight from certain disaster. What part did this humble pen play in the epic tale of the first manned mission to the moon? The 1960s, Boulder City, Nevada. Paul Fisher is a successful engineer and entrepreneur. Paul Fisher was a problem solver, an obsessive tinkerer. And his most recent obsession is the ballpoint pen. Most standard pens leak, smudge, or run out of ink quickly. But Fisher has a design for a new writing instrument that he thinks will change the industry. Called the AG7, Fisher's precision-made pen features a long-lasting, hermetically sealed ink reservoir. And it can write in any condition, upside down, in extreme temperatures, and even underwater. Fisher thinks he has created the perfect pen. In 1965, he puts the AG7 on the market for $6. But with the average ballpoint pen retailing for just 10 cents, Fisher finds few customers. The problem is, the pen is very expensive. But then, an unexpected customer comes calling. The National Aeronautics and Space Administration. NASA had long sent astronauts into space with pencils but they proved somewhat problematic in zero gravity. Pencils were not the best tools to use in space. They would easily smudge, and also, if the lead were to break off, it could interfere with the instruments or even catch on fire. Fisher's product seemed custom-made for NASA. NASA purchases 400 of Fisher's pens and sends a handful of them into space in 1968 with the Apollo 7 mission. And Fisher, realizing the enormous opportunity he's been handed, immediately rebrands his product as the Space Pen. Suddenly, Fisher's pen becomes the official writing instrument of outer space. Sales of the Space Pen took off. And that's just the start. On July 16, 1969, Apollo 11 lifts off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. On board are astronauts Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins, along with a supply of Fisher's space pens, including this one, now on display at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Days later, nearly 600 million viewers around the globe watch as Armstrong takes his first historic strides on the moon. The crew returns to a hero's welcome. Soon, stories begin swirling about this history-making moment, and Fisher homes in on one particular rumor that he thinks could send his sales sky high. He creates a marketing pamphlet, and he includes it in every pen case. The pamphlet says that when the astronauts prepared to return home, they found that the lunar module's ignition switch had somehow been dislodged from the dashboard. If they couldn't figure out how to switch on the ignition, they could have been stranded on the moon. 
So one of the astronauts improvised. Buzz Aldrin realizes that the solution could be right at his fingertips. According to Fisher, Aldrin pulled out a space pen, inserted it into the breaker, and started the ignition, averting a potential tragedy. On the back of this sensational tale, Fisher sells $6 million worth of pens the following year. Fisher's space pen becomes known as the pen that saves Apollo 11. There's just one problem. NASA never confirmed the story, neither did Buzz Aldrin. Fisher continues selling space pens for the next two decades. But then, in 1989, Buzz Aldrin releases a book called Men from Earth. The memoir includes undisclosed details about the Apollo 11 mission, including an entire passage dedicated to the ignition incident. Finally, the truth of the space pen legend reveals itself. According to Aldrin, he did use a pen to toggle the capsule's damaged switch. There's just one thing. It wasn't a space pen. Because the space pen is made of metal, it could have shorted the ignition's circuit. So Aldrin opted for a plastic Duro felt tip pen, which was kept on board for writing on surfaces such as glass, the one thing the Fisher space pen couldn't do. Ironically, Duro went out of business in the 1970s. Despite the revelation, NASA never asks Fisher to retract his story. And the tale, which has been allowed to take root for over 20 years, endures. In fact, the heroic story becomes so entrenched in the public consciousness that in 2009, a senior NASA official visits the San Diego Air and Space Museum and mistakenly praises the Fisher space pen as the pen that got the astronauts home from the moon. The space pen may not have saved Apollo 11, but the legend lives on. And today, this Fisher space pen remains on display as a reminder of one incident on the moon that nearly rewrote American history. Little Rock, Arkansas is perhaps best known as the one-time home of former President Bill Clinton. But it was also home to General Douglas MacArthur, who was born here at the U.S. Arsenal Building in 1880. Today, his birthplace is preserved as the MacArthur Museum of Arkansas Military History. The vast collection includes a World War II Jeep, a machine gun from World War I, and a six-pound cadet gun from the 1860s. But among these tools of the battlefield is a serene object that looks better suited to a cathedral. It's made out of lead and glass. It's very colorful. The central figure is a 17-year-old boy that many have described as a very angelic presence. According to museum director Stephen McAteer, this revered artifact weaves an intriguing tale of espionage, romance, and death. There's more to this legend than meets the eye. So who is this saintly figure? And how did he become one of Arkansas's most admired folk heroes? 1863, Little Rock, Arkansas. Two years into the Civil War, this capital city and the surrounding area has fallen under control of Northern forces. To protect against Confederate insurgents, the Union severely restricts movement in and out of the city by requiring residents to obtain a special passport. It's amidst this tense atmosphere that on December 29th, a federal soldier stops a young man who is traveling alone. He asks for his pass to determine 
what he was doing in that area. The man identifies himself as David Dodd, a 17-year-old traveling to Confederate-controlled Arkansas, but he fails to produce a passport. David explained that he had presented the pass previously to a soldier who had taken it. The soldier doesn't believe David's story and decides to search him. It's then that he makes a troubling discovery. They found in his possession a notebook that had Morse-coded information. It was a description of the federal troop strengths in Little Rock. The soldier is stunned. If this information were to fall into Confederate hands, it would leave the Union Army vulnerable to attack. He demands to know how the teenager came to be in possession of it. But he refuses to answer. So the soldier arrests him, and soon after, David Dodd is charged with espionage. The penalty was death by hanging. According to legend, David Dodd is brought before General Frederick Steele, the commander of Union forces in Arkansas. The general orders him to provide the name of the person who supplied him with this closely guarded information, and he offers the young man a stark choice. Stories suggest that General Steele gave him the opportunity to spare his life if he would only reveal the name of that accomplice. But the tight-lipped teenager will only say that he will not betray a friend. David Dodd is put on trial and convicted of spying. And on January 8th, he is marched to the gallows. There he is given one last chance. Reveal the name of his source and his life will be spared. David Dodd refuses to implicate anyone else in the crime. Remaining silent to the end, he is finally executed. After his death, David Dodd is buried in Little Rock. But the story doesn't end there. Following the Civil War, tales of David Dodd's defiant act strike a chord with weary Southerners. Arkansas was looking for heroes, and uh, they decided to uh, choose David. Women cover his grave with flowers. Poems are written to memorialize him. And as the years pass, the legend of his stoic silence only grows. The venerated teenager eventually becomes known as the boy martyr of the Confederacy. And in 1911, this stained glass window, now on display at the MacArthur Museum of Arkansas Military History, is commissioned to sanctify his story. It depicts David in an almost saint-like pose, befitting his status in Arkansas lore. He almost comes across as a Christ-like figure. But one question remains. Who was David Dodd protecting? The mystery perplexes residents for another four years. Finally, in 1915, a Little Rock resident named Duran Whipple says the informant was none other than his own mother, a former socialite named Mary Dodge. Whipple asserts that David Dodd attended a Christmas party while he was in Little Rock in 1863. And it was there that he caught the eye of a beautiful 16-year-old Mary Dodge. She was known to be a very fiery Confederate uh, supporter. According to the story, Mary learned of the secret Union positions by eavesdropping on soldiers quartered in her house during the occupation. 
and it was amidst a tender interaction with Dodd that she enticed him to take the list to Confederate officials. He had been seduced, if you will, to participate in the espionage. While there is no way to prove Whipple's claim, the touching tale of star-crossed lovers adds an intriguing postscript to David Dodd's defiant act. It's a love story that transcends the ages. The saga of the boy martyr of the Confederacy remains one of the most enduring legends in Arkansas folklore. Today, this stained glass window at the MacArthur Museum of Arkansas Military History is a vivid reminder of the cost of war and the haunting power of young love. Located in Northern California, the city of Wairika was originally called Thompson's Dry Diggings in honor of the man who discovered gold here in 1851. And today, one institution celebrates the area's mining heritage, the Siskiyou County Museum. Its collection includes medical tools used by early settlers, a pioneer's wagon, and animal traps from the region's once prolific fur trade. But according to author Gail Jenner, one item here seems to serve no practical purpose. The artifact is 15 and a half inches across, weighs about two pounds, is made of tin. It has two X's in the center and around the edge, the great seal of State of Jefferson. This gold pan has its origins in a tense regional standoff between ordinary citizens and their local government. It symbolizes a people who've had to assert themselves in order to be heard. What was the state of Jefferson? 1941, Port Orford, Oregon. Just 60 miles from the border with California, this tiny town's economy depends on timber and minerals found in the surrounding mountains. But the few roads into these resource-rich areas are constantly at the mercy of Mother Nature. Most of the roads were basically just dirt and mud. During the rainy seasons, trucks would often get stuck. In search of a solution, residents turned to the town mayor, an eccentric public relations expert named Gilbert Gable. Gilbert was quite charismatic and had a vision to improve the situation for the people of the area. Gable pleads with the state government for funds to fix the roads, but officials ignore the small town mayor's requests. It was definitely out of sight, out of mind. But the PR-minded Gable stubbornly persists. He felt that Oregon had not listened to him, that it was time to make a bigger move, a bigger splash. That October, Gable and his supporters make a highly unusual announcement that the town of Port Orford will secede from Oregon and join California. The dramatic stunt is met with an outpouring of support not only in Port Orford, but from frustrated citizens across the region. Soon, leaders from six adjoining counties in Oregon and California proposed taking Gable's radical agenda one step further. They said, why join California? Why join Oregon? Neither one of these states are listening to us. Let's create our own state. Outlining a territory that would eventually encompass an area larger than West Virginia, they named the new state Jefferson, after the author of the Declaration of Independence. The city of Wairika, California is chosen as the new state capital. And as its first governor, they appoint Gilbert Gable. 
Now, with thousands of people rallying behind him, Gable faces a much bigger challenge. Gable needed national support if this movement was going to survive. In his boldest PR stunt yet, Gable issues an official proclamation of independence and even recruits volunteers to defend his new state's borders. Checkpoints were established along Highway 99, which was the major road in and out of town. These outrageous acts capture the attention of the national press. It was an amazing story, and people were attracted to it. And it's on this wave of publicity that Gable organizes a massive celebration to formally introduce the state of Jefferson to the nation. They had a vision for the grand revealing of the new state. But on December 2nd, one day before the ceremony is scheduled to begin, tragedy strikes. Gilbert Gable suffers a heart attack and dies. The news that Gilbert died struck everybody with terrific shock. Reeling from the setback, residents select a sympathetic judge named John Childs to be their new governor. He understood Gable's vision, and so he was a natural choice. On December 4th, an extravagant ceremony is held in Wairika with flags, signs, and this gold pan emblazoned with two bold X's, now on display at the Siskiyou County Museum. That double X stands for being double-crossed, double-crossed by Oregon and by California. Amidst the pomp and circumstance, Jefferson supporters believe that statehood is within their grasp. The people felt that nothing could stop the movement at this point. But just days later, another unexpected event shifts the nation's focus. The surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. The headlines were swept away. Everything came to a halt. With America now at war, the supporters of the state of Jefferson put their dreams aside. Because the people saw themselves as patriots first and rebels second, they scrapped the idea of a movement. But Gable's elaborate crusade does earn one crucial victory. The attention of the state government had been brought to the roads and that they were better maintained. While the goal of statehood was never realized, the dream lives on, with flags and signage from the movement still visible across Wairika. And today, this gold pan sits on display at the Siskiyou County Museum as a simple reminder of a bold idea that bordered on revolution. From an explosive prank to an elusive king, a retail innovation to a space-age pen. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.